Well, how many of you here have met someone famous? Okay, a few hands go up. All right. How many of you know someone who knows someone famous? Okay. If you weren't able to raise your hand, I'm going to help you out today because I am the son of Larry Bird. Now, Larry Bird, if you mention that name to basketball fans, they will immediately think of the hick from French Lick. Larry Bird was from a small little uh, French Lick, Indiana, was a star in, in high school, and so gets recruited by the famous Indiana Hoosiers to come and play ball for their university. However, it was so difficult going from the small town to kind of the big city, the big university, that he ended up dropping out and played at a community college that next year. Well, Indiana State saw their opportunity and recruited him to come there. And his senior year, he led Indiana State to their first and only NCAA Finals, where they ended up losing to Michigan State, who had Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson and Larry Bird both got drafted that next year into the NBA, Larry by the Boston Celtics. And he ended up playing 13 years, all for the Celtics. It's, it's unheard of this day to play for one team. Of those 13 seasons, he was an all-star, 12 of those. Three seasons, he was named the league MVP, and he led the Celtics into the playoffs almost every single year, numerous times making it to the finals, and three of those times, they actually won the finals. And of those three titles wins, twice he was named the MVP of the, of the finals. Uh, Larry was six foot nine, and yet could move with incredible grace. He had such a soft touch. He was unlike anything you'd really ever seen. Now, I'm not going to call him the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Most people fight, whether that's LeBron James or Michael Jordan. All I know is that Larry Bird was so good, he even became famous to non-basketball fans. And so that's why it's kind of fun for me to be able to tell people that I am the son of Larry Bird. Now, one thing, when, when you go and you tell someone, hey, I know the son of Larry Bird, just conveniently leave out the part that my dad is not the basketball player, Okay. Because other than the name, they don't really have anything in common, right? My dad's from Nebraska, not Indiana. My dad's like a foot shorter than, than Larry Bird. My, my dad is nowhere near the $45 million net worth that Larry Bird is. And probably most glaring of all, my dad stinks at basketball. And, and that's not my words. Those, are, those would be his words. He is not very good. And I unfortunately inherited those athletic genes, right? But I do like to tell people that my dad is a far nicer guy. Right now, I have no idea if that's true. I've never actually met the basketball legend, but my dad is an incredible guy. So I like to think that I actually won in this deal, that I've got the better Larry Bird. Because when I was a kid, my dad was just really involved in my life. I, I can still remember back to times my dad getting on the floor and wrestling with me and my brother. Or we had a wood-burning stove, and, and he, at times he would take the wood, especially if it was really thin. He'd let me and my brother karate chop it so we'd feel really strong. You know, my, my dad just sought to do what he could to make others feel successful. And, and yet he was very successful himself. Uh, he, he is very talented in art. Uh, he's also incredible in woodworking. Uh, just about anything my dad envisions, he not only can pull off, but he does it with incredible excellence. I mean, for instance, uh, that box right back there that you're going to drop your giving cards in at the end, my dad made that for Riverwood. I mean, and he just came up with it. He didn't even draw out plans or look something up. He just does it. My dad is incredibly talented. But probably best of all is just the way my dad relates with people. Uh, when my dad was 25, he finally realized the story about Jesus. And so he ended up giving his life to Christ and ended up leading my mom just a few months later. And so I had the pleasure of being born into a brand new baby Christian family. 
And so my parents were eager in their faith, wanting to grow spiritually. And so they began to teach their little kids about Jesus. And so my dad tells the story of when I was four years old. I just was full of spiritual questions, just asking and asking and asking. And finally, my dad, after answering a number of questions, just says, Aaron, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? And he says, I climbed up into his lap and prayed a beautiful little innocent prayer and then proceeded to get down and go right back to playing. But my dad has been instrumental in, in my life spiritually. He has been a fantastic dad. In fact, he's an elder at his church. He uh, teaches what we would call a Sunday school class on Sunday mornings to his, his uh, uh, church family. And in fact, right now, he's discipling a 25-year-old guy one-on-one once a week. You know, here he is retired, could just be spending all the time on himself, and yet he continues to give to people, seeking to make them successful and that they would find life in Christ. My dad is a fantastic guy. And if you don't believe me, he'll be here on Christmas Eve, and you can ask him yourself. And if you want to, you can get his autograph. Now, if you have a great dad like I do, you should consider yourself very, very blessed. Because you and I are in the minority. There are a lot of people in this world that do not have a great dad. The relationship is very strained, or maybe dad wasn't even involved at all. And there are all sorts of ramifications when dad is not a key integral part of a kid's life. For instance, 63% of teen suicides are by teens who are fatherless. Uh, 90% of kids who are homeless or runaways are running away from a single parent home where there's not a dad. 85% of kids who display behavior disorders don't have a father figure. 40% of people in prison have no one to call on Father's Day. And, and that's just some of them. I mean, I could go on showing how grades are affected and the types of jobs people get and, and the type of people that they marry or date. Like, we could go on and on and on. Substance abuse, there's more. Like, when you don't have a dad or it's a deeply affected relationship, it doesn't just have a chain, an impact on that life in a negative way. It impacts all of society. Dads play an incredibly crucial role. They also affect us spiritually. Uh, the famous Christian author Donald Miller wrote a book called To Own a Dragon, which is just his own story of growing up without a dad. Because he said it, there was no dad ever in the picture. And he says, you may as well have asked me what it was like to own a dragon. He just had no idea what it was like to have a dad. And he shares in that book how it affected him spiritually. I remember years ago talking to one of my friends and uh, she, she just was blurting out, complaining about her father. She and her dad have a very, very strained relationship. And at times it'll look like they're, the, the relationship's mending and being healed. And then, in her opinion, dad will do something that just rips it apart. One thing that put a strain on the relationship was that in her 20s, she became passionate about Jesus. She gave her life to Christ, and her dad thought she'd become a religious nut. And that put a strain and, and then uh, she's tried to mend this relationship with her dad. She, she feels like dad is just incredibly unreliable. That There's so many times where dad will say, yeah, yeah, I'll show up. You know, a kid's birthday or something. And then dad's a no-show. She just sees him as being unreliable. And then the times that he actually does show up, he will often do things just to undermine the values that she and her husband are trying to pass on to their kids. And, and her dad thinks it's a joke. He thinks it's funny. 
But he knows it drives her absolutely nuts to give her kids sips of beer or, or to take them out where they shouldn't be going. And she admitted that it's really put a problem, a strain on her relationship with God. Because she found herself wondering that if God is really a father, does that mean he's also unreliable? That he's going to be a no-show? Or that he's going to treat me differently than he treats everyone else? And so she said she had to learn what a good daddy is supposed to look like so that she could begin to understand who God really is. Today, we come to the third week in our Advent series. We've been looking at these four titles in Isaiah 9-6 that have been given to Jesus. Uh, in week one, we looked at this idea of Jesus as a wonderful counselor. We saw it was this idea that he was an amazing strategist, that, that as a counselor, he could guide us and lead us. And so what we need to do is follow him and trust him. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the mighty God. And so because he is God, we are to fear him, we are to trust him, we are to love him, we are to worship him. But this week, we come to the third title. And the third title that Isaiah gave to Jesus 700 years before Jesus was ever laid in a manger was the name Everlasting Father. You know, let's look at it together. Isaiah 9-6. Let's just read this one more time. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God, I ask that this morning you would be our teacher. I do not know every single story of the people that are out in the seats right now, but you do. You know their fears. You know their hurts. You know their joys. So, Father, I pray that today for those who had a great dad growing up, that they would see you are even better. But for those who have a strained relationship with a father, or they're missing a father who has passed away, or they did not ever have a dad in their life, that today they would see that you love them like a really good daddy, that you are there for them, that, that you are giving to them, you are providing, you are doing everything that a dad should in the most important ways. And so, Father, I pray that today would be a day of comfort, a, a day of reminding, a, a day that we would find maybe healing in our souls, and that you'd remind us that we're your kids, that everything that you have is ours, and that would bring us peace. That would bring us joy in this Advent season. So God, have your way in us right now. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. I'm going to invite you, if you brought a Bible today, to open it up to Mark chapter 6. Uh, we were in Mark last week. We're going to go back to Mark again. So Mark chapter 6. And as you turn to Mark, uh, just a couple of things. If you're a first-time guest and don't have a Bible, don't worry. I'm going to have the scripture up on the screen so that we can all read along together. But at the same time, I'm going to ask you to do two things. One, stop back by our Give and Grow table and pick up a paper copy. If you do not own a Bible, we want you to have one. And we'd love for you to make this your everyday Bible. We've got two different translations back there. We'll find the one that will fit you. And that way, anytime you come to Riverwood, you can open it up with us because this is what we do every single Sunday. And then you could also read it on Monday and Tuesday and every other day of the week. Just make it your everyday Bible. Also, if you have a smartphone, we encourage you, download a Bible to it. That way, wherever you go with your phone, you always have a Bible available. And so that way, instead of pulling out Candy Crush on your phone when you're waiting at the doctor's office, maybe you just pull out your Bible and you just start reading it. And that way, you always have it with you. As you're turning to Mark chapter 6, uh, let me just share two things. One, a disclaimer 
and then my agenda. All right, first, the disclaimer. Within Christianity, there is a key core doctrine called the Trinity. It's our understanding of God. If you're not familiar with what the Trinity is, it's this idea that there's only one God, but this one God reveals himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are in complete unity, complete purpose, complete perfect relationship, and therefore they are truly one. But you know, humans have really struggled with this idea for centuries. I, it's really baffling. How can something that's one also be three and the three be one? And we, we come up with explanations, some of them somewhat good, some of them really not very good, but, but we do our best. But what ends up happening is oftentimes some people or groups will fall into a, a, a false understanding of the Trinity and it leads them into a form of heresy. Uh, one misunderstanding of the Trinity is what would be called tritheism. Uh, th this is where you end up focusing so much on the three that you end up downplaying the idea of God being one. Another one would be Arianism. Uh, this is where you focus so much on the one that you deny the three. Uh, for instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses would be, uh, they would believe a form of Arianism. That they believe that there is one God, but that they see Jesus as being the very first created being that God made. And so therefore Jesus is really important, but he is not God. They focus on one, they deny the three. But I think within Christianity, the easiest form of heresy to fall into is modalism. This is where you do believe there's one God. He reveals himself in three persons, but he only reveals himself in one person at a time. And so he's the father. But when he needs to be, he becomes the son. He shifts modes. Or then if he needs to be the spirit, he can be the Holy Spirit. And, and he shifts to that mode and then back to the father. You know, he, he is whatever he needs to be, but he's only one at a time. So it's their attempt to hold to one God, three persons. But they actually deny that all three are at the same time. If modalism is true, then who was Jesus praying to? Who was he talking about when he talks about the Father? Why would Jesus say, I'm going to send the Spirit to you? Why not just say, I am the Father, and I will come to you as the Holy Spirit? No, he doesn't. He talks about the Father as if the Father is a person, and he has a relationship with the Father. He talks about the Spirit as if the Spirit was also a person, and he talks about this relationship, and he, he talks as if they're all together. And, and that's why we see Jesus' baptism. There's the son in the water. And as soon as he comes up, you hear the voice of the father. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and settles upon him. All three members of the Trinity are there in that one moment. So if we're going to hold to Orthodox Christianity, we must get this idea of the Trinity correct. Which means we can't fall into heresy when we read Isaiah 9, 6 and look at the idea of this baby, this son that is given as being an everlasting father. Because if you start saying, well, this shows that Jesus is God and he is the father, you're shifting into modalism. And he's not the father. So why does Isaiah call him the everlasting father? I think what Isaiah is trying to convey is the type of love that Jesus, this mighty God, this incredible king, this wonderful counselor was going to bring to the people. That the type of love he was going to have would be like the love of a really good father. And that leads me then to my agenda. My agenda today is to take you to Mark 6 where we look at a story that reveals the type of love that Jesus had for the people and therefore also has for us. And it will help us to see this fatherly love and I think it will then help us in our relationship with him. So would you join me in Mark 
6. We're going to start in verse 30. Before we get there, let me just set the stage. If you kind of glance back, you'll see over earlier around verse 7 of chapter 6, my Bible has a little title. Jesus sends out the 12. So he sends out the 12 disciples in pairs, two by two. So six pairs head out and they go from village to village preaching about Jesus, preaching about the kingdom of God. And Jesus even gave them authority to heal people, to cast out demons. And so by doing these things, people would be like, whoa, what is going on? Where is this power coming from? And then they start talking about the kingdom of God and preparing people for Jesus. And so they're getting opportunities to teach, to minister to people. He's, he's basically giving them the ministry. But as they are out traveling, you'll notice kind of the next big section. My title says the death of John the Baptist. If you're not familiar with John, John is Jesus's cousin. And so John and Jesus would have grown up a little bit with each other. They lived in different towns, but their families would have traveled to Jerusalem every single year for the Passover. And he would, he'd get to know John over time. And, and then John the Baptist is the one who baptizes Jesus, as we just talked about, in the river when the Spirit descended and you heard the voice of the Father. That was John dipping him under and bringing him up to prepare Jesus, to launch him into his public ministry. So Jesus has a relationship with John. And he finds out that Herod, who considered himself king, has now beheaded John the Baptist. So now Jesus is grieving. I think Jesus knew it was going to happen. And yet it still pains Jesus, God the Son, knowing that this is not how life was intended by God. So you got the disciples off on their trip and Jesus hears this news. And now the guys have come back. And so Jesus is probably grieving just a little bit. The guys have had a great trip, but they're tired. Have you ever gone on a a wonderful vacation? And you're like, that was fantastic, but I'm tired. I'm worn out. You need just a couple of days to recoup. And that's what's going on when we start there in verse 30. So join me, Mark 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus. And told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Well, when he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? By the way, a denarii was a a coin that, that counted about one day's wages. All right, so they're basically saying, uh, there's so many people here, it's going to take like 200 days of work to pay for all of the food. Uh, verse uh, 38, and, and he, Jesus, said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. 
What I see in this passage is four ways, at least four ways, that Jesus displays love like a good daddy. All right, so the ways that Jesus, like a good daddy, Jesus is selfless. The first thing is that Jesus is selfless. When we start this story, Jesus is absolutely, uh, I mean, sorry, his disciples are, are, are worn out a bit, right? Jesus is grieving. And, and so it seems very wise for him to say, hey, guys, let's, let's pull away for a bit. Let's get alone. Let's just kind of rest. We need a little bit of R&R. But when that boat pulls up, there's already a crowd gathered. They know who Jesus is. His fame is already starting to spread. They're hoping to hear some amazing teaching. They're hoping for maybe some healing. Have you ever been at a place where you're just exhausted? You feel like you almost have nothing left to give, and yet somehow your kids or a friend or someone contacts you, and they're wanting more from you. And you're just wondering, do I have it? If I were Jesus, I probably would have gotten out of the boat, looked at the crowds, and said, hey, everyone, thank you so much for coming. I I'm glad you came. But my, my guys and I, we're, we're really tired. We're, we're worn out. So we're just going to go up in the hills for a little while. Would you guys come back in a couple of days? When you come back, I, I promise you, I'll teach you. I'll, I'll heal your sick, but just, just come back. I mean, if, if Jesus had done that, maybe it's because he'd read the book Boundaries. You know, he knows that I don't have anything more to give. You know, just putting up a boundary so I can be healthy and then I can take care of you. I don't think that would have been wrong or sinful, but it's not what he does. Instead, it says that he comes up and he steps out onto the shore. said that he had compassion on them, seeing them like sheep without a shepherd. In that moment, he just began to give of himself. He was so incredibly selfless. Good daddies are selfless. Good daddies will get down on the floor and play with their kids. A, a, a good daddy will put down his phone and sit and listen to his babbling preschooler tell him about his mundane day. A, a, a good daddy will get down and play dolls with his daughter even after a really hard, long day at work. It's, it's just what good daddies do. They are selfless. We see this in Jesus. When he steps off that boat, instead of saying, hey, everyone, let's just take a break, he begins to give of himself. He's so selfless. I think that's why Paul, when he was writing the letter to the church in Philippi, in what we know is the second chapter of that letter, he says in verse 3, to consider the needs of others before your own. And then just two verses later, to help unpack this idea, he begins talking about Jesus. Maybe Paul had this story in mind. Because Jesus did just that. He considered the needs of the people before his own. He was incredibly selfless. The second thing I see that Jesus does, like a good daddy, is that Jesus is a provider. He is a provider. When we look at this story, we see immediately Jesus provide for the people. My, my dad was that way. He was a provider. Uh, my, my dad, um, he had an art education degree. And so when he uh, graduated college, he found a, a job in a school district. And, and he taught elementary and middle school art for about six years. And then he ended up making a transition to a small little chain of shoe stores and was their art and marketing department. So the 80-some stores that were around the Midwest, he was in charge of the signs that would go up in their windows or the ads that would go in the newspaper. And he did that for 26 years before heading off on a new adventure to start a brand new business. 
And he started that business, raised it up and sold it off and now is in kind of semi-retirement. But when I just heard his schedule recently, he's not really retired. He's as busy as ever. But my dad has always sought to provide. Now, being an, an art teacher and then his other job at the shoe company, it, it didn't really pay a ton. We didn't have a lot of extra money. We had a, a comfortable middle school, ex, a middle class existence, but there just wasn't much buffer. And so my parents had to get really creative. And so one of the things they did was they installed a wood-burning stove in our house so that we would heat our entire home off of wood. We saved so much money. Now, it cost us a lot of time. I, I can't tell you how many Saturdays I spent out at some farmer's field where my dad's taking out an old dead tree that the farmer needed to get rid of anyway, so we're getting it for absolutely free. We got Nebraska Cornhusker football on the radio blasting as my brother and I are stacking wood into the back of the truck. And that's how many Saturdays in the fall I spent. And then we'd use that wood all winter long to heat our house and saved so much money. My dad also provided food. My, my dad was a big hunter. Yes, it was a form of leisure. It was something he really enjoyed, but it also provided some of what we needed. And so I grew up eating pheasant and quail and venison. And so I just need to say to the hunters, if you ever have too much meat, you can donate it to the birdhouse. We will gladly take it. My dad sought to provide because that's what good daddies do. Jesus, like a good daddy, like an everlasting father, provides for the people. We immediately see him begin to, to uh, teach the people. He's providing them with spiritual food. And then a little later in the story, we see him providing physical food. And then also, it's not here in Mark, but if you go and read the same story over in Matthew and Luke, you'll see that they drew, draw out that Jesus healed the people. And so he's providing them with healing, with food, with spiritual nourishment, because that's what good daddies do. But I think it's possible for a dad to provide, but his heart not be in it. Like he could go to work, he could get the paycheck, he'll pay the mortgage, he'll buy, let the you know, money be used for food and clothing, but his heart just isn't there. And that leads to the third thing, that good daddies, they don't just provide, good daddies also will care. Jesus is caring. The first place we see in the story of Jesus caring is in the very beginning. We first see him caring for the disciples. The disciples have just returned from their, their journey. They're tired. And so he shows a bit of care to say, hey guys, let's, let's go. Now here's what I suspect. I, I might be wrong. I'm reading this into the story. So don't take this as gospel truth. I think Jesus gets in the boat and knows what's going to happen. And so I think he just takes a long time. Like, hey guys, don't, you don't need to paddle so fast. Let's just coast here for a bit. And he's maybe spending that time there because he knows that when they get to shore, when they get to their retreat location, there's going to be a bunch of people. Now, I believe that Jesus wants to show his disciples the values of the kingdom. And one of those values is the value of selflessness, of love. And so Jesus gets there and says, all right, guys, we're going to minister to the people. We're going to show them that we care. And, and his care, it's, it's holistic, right? Yeah, he, he provides for them spiritually. He, he cares that way. He, he cares physically for them. But it said there in verse 34 that he showed compassion. He had compassion for the people. His heart is in this. He is for the people. And so it's not like, okay, fine, I'll do this. You're healed. Here's some food. No, he cares for them. He loves them. That's what good daddies do. They care deeply for their kids. 
And so when the kid's crying at night, they don't just throw the pacifier in the mouth and leave them in bed. They, they will hold them to calm them, to comfort them because they care. So a good daddy, he's selfless. He's a provider. He's caring. But also he's involved. The fourth and last thing I'm going to point out is that he is involved. You know, when a uh, tragedy hits uh, our, our country, you know, like the wildfires that just devastated, uh, you know, California or, um, you know, a school shooting or, you know, like the hurricanes that we were just talking about. When, when these tragedies hit, I, I think most of us, we, we care. Uh, some of us, we, we show our care by praying. Uh, some of us, we, we care by posting links to articles on, on social media or, you know, things to remind people to pray. We might even post links of ways people could give financially. And that's another way we care. We, we give money. You know, we, we're doing that as a church family. We're, we're pooling together our resources to try to make a difference, to make an impact on eight days of hope. And, and, and so we're trying to help them out. And so this is a great way to care. But a way to take your care even deeper is to personally get involved. I, I mean, it's one thing for us to pray for the victims of the hurricanes. It's another for us to give money and, and send it to eight days of hope to go make a difference. But what if you took the time from work, your precious vacation days, and rather than expend them on yourselves, what if you gave up eight days to travel to one of these locations, to use your time, your energy, to rebuild, to help tear out that which is rotting and molding, to help build in what is needed? What if you did that? That's taking your care to a whole nother level. That's what good daddies do. My good daddy has been very involved, not just through my childhood, but even into my adult years, to the point that he and my mom have given financially to Riverwood for a number of years. Even before Riverwood had a name, even before we knew about Waverly, they were giving to support this mission. They, they've given, you know, I said he made that box back there. He, he made the acoustic panels that are around here. They were there on launch Sunday when we launched at the Waverly Shell Rock Middle School. They were here on the day that we celebrated the installation of our elders, and he was taking photos of the day. He's a great dad, and he's been involved, even here in Riverwood, even though he lives a couple hours away. Contrast that with a friend of mine who's been in ministry for a few years. He's a worship leader at his church, and his dad says that he loves him, says that he cares, says that he's proud of him, and has yet never seen his son lead worship at the church. Claims he's a Christian, and yet has never gone once to even support his son. It's one thing to say you care. It's another to actually show it. A, a, a good daddy doesn't just buy the bike for the kid and say, hey, good luck. They go out in the driveway with them and help them. You know, they don't, they don't just buy them the glove and say, have fun. They, they go out in the backyard. Even if they're not athletic, they find ways to be involved with their kids they set their stuff aside to get down on the floor and be in their lives. That's what we see Jesus do. Remember, Jesus had just sent his disciples away on their little trip. So they had just done teaching. They had just done healing. They had just done trying to minister to people. So when they got there, Jesus could have said, all right, guys, you guys have had the training. You guys know what to do. Get out there and do it. Teach the people, heal them. I'm just going to get back in the boat. I'm still sad about John. I, I'm just going to go up here in the hills. You guys got this. He, he doesn't. It's Jesus who stays right there teaching. It's Jesus who breaks the bread. 
It's Jesus putting his hands on people, listening to them, caring for them, being involved. That's why I think Isaiah calls Jesus an everlasting father. Because he had a fatherly type love for the people. And that includes us. When it comes to us, Jesus is selfless. He provides. He cares. And he also is going to be there for us, being involved. But I realize that for some of us, this is a struggle. Maybe you're going through something right now, and you don't see God as being selfless. You see God as being demanding. You feel like you're never doing enough. Is it going to be enough for him to be happy with you, to be pleased with you, to accept you, to let you into heaven? And you're just constantly fearful and worried. Or, or, or maybe you're, you're, you know, you're wondering, is God a provider? Like your bank account is at next to nothing. You, you have this emotional strain going on. You've got, you know, you're, you're worried about your job. I mean, life is hard and you're just wondering, is God going to provide what I need? Some of you, you see, yeah, I've, I've got a house. I've, I've got a marriage. I've got all these things, but does God even really care? And some of you, you're wondering, is God even involved? Because when you pray, you feel like you're just speaking into the silence. You feel like maybe God is far away. He's taking care of more important things. And he's just not involved with you. If you ever hit that point, you need to do one thing. You need to look at the gospel. Because if you look at the gospel, you look at what Jesus did on the cross, it changes those fears that you're having right now. Because when you look at the cross, you see that Jesus was incredibly selfless. You and I should have been the ones to die for our sin, but he did it for us. He did the most selfless act anyone could do. That's how much he loves us. If you will look at the cross, you'll see that Jesus provides. Our sin kept us separated from God, and yet he provided the way for us to find spiritual reconnection with God, for us to have spiritual freedom, for us to have spiritual life, for us to have spiritual restoration. When you look at the cross, you'll see that Jesus cares. Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before him? Because there was nothing joyful in the cross. That was a bunch of whippings and, and your nails being, you know, nails driven through your wrists. I mean, it was excruciating. What joy was there in the cross? The joy was you. Because he knew on the other side of the cross, you would be made free. Your sin would be forgiven. You could reconnect with him and the father. You are his joy. He cares for you. And then lastly, Jesus did not create some other being to come and pay the penalty. He came himself. He was personally involved in our redemption because only God could have done this. And as God the Son, he came to love us like an everlasting father, to personally be involved in our redemption so that we could become children of God. And so if you right now are struggling to see God for who he truly is, look to the cross and realize that through the cross, Jesus displayed a good daddy's love. He loves you. And may you not doubt it today. So Father, I just pray you would help us to see Jesus for who he really is. Not what our culture says, not what the Christmas stories say, but for what you say. Because Jesus, you do love us like an everlasting father. You are a good daddy. 
You've given everything for us. So God, I just, I pray that you right now would minister to your people, that you would lead us to trust you, to worship you, to realize how much you love us, and that because you first loved us, we can love you. So Father, as we come to the communion elements, I pray that you would minister through this, that as we remember the cross, that Jesus, your body was broken for us, your blood was shed for us, that you would do some healing in our hearts. Help us to see you like a good daddy, to see how you are selfless, how you provide, how you care, and how you are involved in each and every mundane moment of our day. You are always with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.